Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Hey, uh, welcome again. Um, as many of you guys know, um, our senior pastor of this church, Pastor Ronswar, is in a season of a leave of absence right now in order to help him recover and be restored from an addiction to pain medication. And this information was shared at all three services by our district supervisor, Larry Spousta, two weekends ago. If you weren't here, if this is news to you, please do go back and listen to um, that sermon. It's on our website at canbefoursquare.com. And uh, we want to encourage you to stay updated with that. However, many of you guys have come up to us and you've asked questions like, well, we really love Ron and Annette. We want to help support them and this church during this time. What can we do? Um, And so I want to give you a couple of items here. First to do, please, Ron and Annette love you guys and they would love to be able to hear from you. So if you do have, um, you're welcome to send them a note or an email. If you don't have Ron and Annette's home address, you're welcome just to send it here to the church. We'll make sure that it gets to them. It's important that we help surround our pastor with love during this time. Also, if you are praying, please do pray along these lines. One, that Ron would experience a full release and restoration from uh, his addiction, and also for the entire family, because as you guys know, addiction affects the entire family, and so we want to pray for healing there. And also, for those of us as um, pastors here at this church, we endeavor to continue to keep the main thing, the main thing, and to shepherd and love people well, and to stay on mission on task for God's glory in this community. And so thank you. Um, I want to stand up here and say thank you from all of the pastors for your support and prayer during this time. So thank you very much. We are very grateful for you guys. Well, this weekend marks the last sermon that we'll be doing in the story that's in the Old Testament. Next week, you get to start to talk about Jesus, which I'm really excited about because I'll be doing that one too. And then over the past 19 weeks, we've watched as God has created and sustained and protected and provided for a people that would come to be the people from whom Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all of humanity, would come. But the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament, unfortunately, is about two parts success to ten parts failure. And the failure was in large part because the people grew comfortable and they forgot God. And they began to worship other gods. And on account of their persistent idolatry, which God daily, the Bible says, he would send messengers to them, asking them to repent, holding up a mirror to their sinfulness and saying, God will bring about judgment because God is not only a loving God, he is a just God. And so he will bring about consequences for sin. And the consequences of the people's sin occurred in 586 B.C. when the city of Jerusalem fell to a group of people called the Babylonians. The Babylonians had been in power for several decades and they had um, interfered with the people in Jerusalem for many years. And finally they came in and they burned the city down. And so what they did is they went in there and every house they burnt down and they took the temple, which was the centerpiece of Israelite identity, And they stripped all of the gold out of the temple and they took away all of the precious items and then they knocked the whole thing over and they took the wall that surrounded the city and with grapples and hooks literally tore it down. And the people went into exile. The Babylonians took them out of their land and for 70 years they lived hundreds of miles in a foreign land away from the place that formed the core of their identity. 
They were without everything that made them unique as God's people. And the question becomes, is God going to leave them in that place? Answer is no. God, in his grace, allowed the Babylonians to be overtaken by another group of people called the Persians. And when this happened in the year 539 B.C., there was a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus issues a decree that says all of the people who had been captured by the Babylonians, they can return all the way back over to the land that they'd been taken from. And thus we begin to look at the characters of Ezra and Nehemiah that will be the focus of our time today. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray, get into the text. Jesus, thank you that you alone can bring beauty from ashes. Thank you that the end of the story for those of us who believe in you is glory and not tragedy. Please help us to be people who partner with you in this world to bring about redemption and grace. Assist us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear, to listen, and to apply that which we hear in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, The book of Ezra, it's a little tough to find, so if you've got your Bibles, open it. You're going to go past all of the first and second books, and if you hit Psalms and Proverbs, you've gone too far. Ezra is about a third of the way through. If you're using those little blue Bibles in uh, in the seats in front of you, the page number is 334. If you've got it on your electronic device, it's swipe to unlock, find your app, open it up. It will tell you Ezra. You hit on that, and that's where we'll begin. Ezra chapter 1, here is this proclamation that Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's important. This return from exile was no accident. God, in his divine mercy, had granted the people, saying that on their way out of town, he said, you will come back. And it took a while, but he did. That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in writing, quote, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Verse 4. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of that place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this proclamation was the beginning of the return of the people from the exile that God had sent them to. And you don't need to remember these names, but guys by Zerubbabel and Joshua lead the first wave of refugees that come back to the city of Jerusalem. And their first priority was to rebuild the altar and lay the foundation for the temple. Why? Because it was their center of spiritual worship and practice. This is what the Bible says, um, Ezra 3, chapter 10, verses uh, 10 through 13. The altar had already been rebuilt, and now they're about to lay the foundation. The verse says in verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with the trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. So here's the picture right now. A bunch of refugees have come back to the land, and they begin to restart life as normal. They begin the altar, so they begin to sacrifice, and then they lay the foundation 
foundation for the temple. And as soon as it was laid, they hold a big church service. All the pastors are there in suits and ties. The worship team is ready to rock and roll. And here's what they say. They say they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God. Quote, he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. You've got to understand the situation these people are in. For centuries, they had been God's chosen people with all of the covenants and the promises and the laws of God to obey and abide by, and they failed. Persistent sin, idolatry, addiction to foreign gods that were no gods at all had caused the just God Almighty to kick them out of the land. The hammer had fallen. And they lived for several generations apart from everything that made them unique. And here in this moment, do you see what's happening? God is restoring them. He's restoring their identity. He's restoring their uniqueness. He's restoring their purpose. And the moment that the foundation of that temple is laid, they come back and they say, he is good. He is good. And his steadfast love, literally covenant-keeping love, God made a promise and he wasn't going to back out on it, endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Huge deal. Verse 12, pay attention. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, old men who had seen the first house, they, they wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So two notes here. Notice that the first priority of the people was to restore their spiritual center. It's curious because the city had no walls which meant they were still completely vulnerable to attack. Practically, you would think the pragmatic thing to do would be to make sure that your perimeter is secure and that people don't do that. They say the first thing that we need to do is make sure that our interior is in right alignment with Jesus. This is a big clue to how God saves a person, how he restores a person. If you're struggling with an addictive pattern of behavior as these people were, if you're a person who's broken down, God's first step in your life is to restore your spirit and your heart towards him because what he can give you is a new life, a new set of motivation, a new set of inclinations, a new spirit residing within you so that now your very affections incline towards God himself, not towards the thing that was keeping you in bondage. Absolutely, you need to build your walls because you need to defend that which God has repaired. And the people will do this. So you need to have structure and you need to have accountability. And you need to have systems in your life that will help you prevent relapse. However, the first and most important thing is to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, make me clean. Wash me anew. And that's where his grace comes into your life. Now, but you notice that second part, though? Do you notice how all the old men who had seen the first house that was destroyed many years ago, when they saw the foundation for the second one being laid, they wept. They wept. Now, why was that? Well, if you know anything about Solomon's temple, the first temple that was built, uh, Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It stood 45 feet wide, excuse me, um, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. 
It was essentially, I'm exaggerating only slightly, a massive brick of solid gold. This was the, this was the result of kingdom economics. These people had so much money and they threw it all at this temple building project. It was custom designed for everybody who saw it to go, whoa, that is awesome. And it was the source of the people's identity. And after their persistent sin had offended God, he judged them by ripping this house down. But he gives them grace to be able to rebuild the second house. And let me show you an artist's rendition of what you think. This one, not nearly as nice. You see, the, fir- the people who had built the first house, David was great, a fantastic king. Solomon, wise man, unbelievably wealthy. The Bible says that he made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And they threw all that into the temple and they made it so glorious. And the people who built this temple are a bunch of refugees trying to make do with what's left in the land. Rebuilding out of burned bricks. And the people who had seen the former glory of the temple, when they saw the foundation for this house being laid, they wept because they knew that even though God had returned them to the land, he did not bring them back to the same level of economic prosperity that they used to have. There's a prophet, you don't have to turn there, his name is Haggai, he's tucked into the end of your Old Testament, and he prophesies during this same time, and this is what he says, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory. He's saying that this second temple whose foundation had just been laid is going to be more glorious than Solomon's temple, the solid brick of gold. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What? How can that be? And it has everything to do with how God operates within a community. You see, these people, through their persistent sin, had been judged, and the consequences came. And God was within his rights, essentially, to turn his back on the people and remove from them all of the blessings that they experienced, primarily his presence. But do you see what God does? Not only does he judge his people, the exile was like a kind of rehab for idolatry. They rehab for idolatry where the people, when they went away, they realized that God alone is the one true God. And as he brings them back into the, into the, into the city of Jerusalem, do you know what he does? He gives them the chance for him to dwell with them again. A people who had already been in persistent sin, God says, I will still with you. That is why the, the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the former one. The former house was built out of the kingdom economic model where there was prosperity and outward show. The second house was founded in humility and holiness. And God says, I am pleased to make my name dwell there as well. This is what it works like. Um, pull this uh, temple motif all the way through into the New Testament, Paul says something shocking. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, do you not know that you, you are God's temple and that God's spirit is in you? Now, what's a temple? A temple is a house for a deity, right? Now, when David first said about wanting to make God a temple, God laughed. 
He's like, David, don't you understand? The heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain me. The earth is my footstool. And you're going to pretend that you're going to build me a house? Fair enough. I will still choose to make my name dwell there. And so God built him a temple that was torn down by the Babylonians, rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And God says now in the New Testament that you are, now what, remember that? Remember that? Because what? Because God is constantly wanting to dwell among his people. He's wanting to dwell among his people. What does John 1.14 says? That Jesus Christ became flesh and he did what he dwelt among us the temple no longer was a place it was a person in the in the form of jesus christ he became literally the dwelling place of god he was fully god and after easter the holy spirit comes and paul says that not only is jesus the dwelling place of god so are you almighty god creator of heaven and earth dwells where Think about the implications of this truth for a moment. That means everywhere you go as a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God accompanies you. God is literally with you, within you. Everything that you say, Jesus is alongside. Everything that you do, Jesus is there. This is why the Bible says, see, and Paul, this is funny, right? The Corinthian church, if you've ever read those letters, those people were screwed up. Those people were a mess. They were all over the map sexually. And Paul tells these people, I want you to glorify God with your body. Christianity is terribly practical, friends. Terribly practical. See, Christianity says that you can redeem your commute. You can redeem your exercise routine. You can redeem the way that you do everything about what you do with the physical members of your body. God says, because you are my dwelling place, you get a chance in what you do and what you say and how you behave and how you handle your sexuality and your money and your relationships. You know what you get a chance to do? You get a chance to become transparent so that the God within you transforms people around you. Glorify God with your body. There's an ethic that comes along with the Christian life. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But how does this even happen? Right? I mean, God is way bigger, and, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and yet that same glory has chosen now to say, I will dwell within you. And you know where I'm going because this has all got to land on Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the good news of the gospel that God stepped into our mess to clean up that which we could not do, not only to set us back up on our feet, but to glorify us so that we now become the inhabitation, the dwelling place of God on high. Jesus Christ has not only taken away your sin, he has made you pure, holy, spotless, a saint, perfect to the degree that God himself says, I want to live within you. And when you continue to sin, who has paid for that? Jesus Christ himself. You see, he gives us not only freedom from past guilt and shame and sin, he has not only covered that, not only does he assure for us a future glory and a salvation, he gives us currently a new life in which you can walk worthy of that which God has called us to. This is especially beautiful when God chooses to do this with people who have been addicted and broken and face down in the ditch because he loves those people especially. 
This is why the latter glory of the temple was greater than the former because one, God gets a hold of a broken life and says, I will make you the dwelling place of God most high. How amazing is that? Watch what Paul says. He opens the letter to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter one. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All begins and ends with God working through Christ who has done what? Jesus Christ, God of his own initiative has, past tense, completed action, blessed. Blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's gonna list them. One, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God had you in his mind before Genesis chapter one. You are not anonymous. You are not lost in the crowd. God knows, God cares, God is after you to pursue you with love, goodness, and kindness. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. There it is. God has made you pure. God has taken the stain of your sin and erased it because the blood of Jesus Christ who now covers those who believe in faith on Christ, when God looks at us from a judicial point of view, he does not see sinner guilty. He sees the blood of the righteous son given on your behalf and he says, holy, blameless. In love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. See, here's the beautiful part about the gospel. The gospel is not simply, you are acquitted, declared not guilty, you may go. No, God has judged, passes sentence on us that says, you are no longer under the sentence of judgment for your sins. Jesus Christ has paid for that all. You are free to go. He takes off his robe as judge. He comes down from his high place and he says, come, my son, my daughter. Be a part of my family. God is not just judge saying you are free to go. He is dad saying, please come back. I wanna give you a hug. I wanna be with you. Through Jesus Christ. This was according to the purpose of his will, here's the key phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. The whole mechanism of salvation, that we are, we are messed up beyond repair, that Jesus Christ is the only solution, and that having now experienced faith in Jesus Christ, we have the blessing of being chosen, adopted, declared not guilty, and invited into the kingdom of God. All of that is so that we do what? We come back and we just say, thank you, thank you to the praise of his glorious grace, the same grace that gets especially magnified when God chooses to redeem broken people. I am believing and praying and hoping for this to come to pass in the life of our senior pastor and for all those here who suffer with addiction and affliction because when God, how amazing is it when, when everything looks hopeless, God says, I can still fix this. And friends, our responsibility as this community is to extend love and grace and accountability and structure because we're not cheap so that God's work of redemption can come to pass. Because why? Because the latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former. All right, I gotta keep moving. Here we go. Where am I? All right, we got a few more things to cover. Okay, the temple gets finished. 
but it takes a whole nother generation to pass through before the walls get addressed. And the guy who's going to be God's man on the scene to address the walls is a fellow by the name of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah had spent his entire life outside of the city of Jerusalem. He was, um, at this time, actually a servant of the king of Persia. He was his cupbearer, which meant that he was the guy responsible for tasting all of the food and drink before it was given to the king, lest someone had poisoned it, the cupbearer dies and not the king. <laughs> That's a pretty cool job, I guess. Um, can you imagine his stress? Um, it also means he's very trusted, right? Because what's to keep him from also poisoning the food before he gives it to the king? And so he had been a man of integrity, and um, he's a Jew, and he receives a report from a messenger coming back from Jerusalem, and the messenger says this. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. It says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed with fire. So Nehemiah, he feels this very deeply, and he goes into the presence of the king. And the king immediately looks at Nehemiah and he goes, Nehemiah, what's going on? You're so sad today. He says, my lord, the king, please live forever. How can I not be sad when I know that the place of my ancestors and my fathers is broken down and left without walls? And his boss, who happens to be the most powerful man in the known world, looks at him and he says, Nehemiah, what do you need? Nehemiah says, I want to go back. I want to try to help. King looks at his wife, looks at Nehemiah, says, be happy to help you. Just let me know when you're going to come back. So Nehemiah leaves and he goes to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, nobody knows what he's there to do. And he goes out by night by himself and he surveys all the walls of Jerusalem that have been broken down. Because the first responsibility of leadership is to simply define reality. What is he dealing with? And he finds out and he comes back and he gathers together the elders and the people and he says, guys, we can do this. God is going to be with us. And so at this point, 141 years had passed where the walls were not repaired. 586, the walls fall. 141 years later, Nehemiah comes onto the scene and says, we can fix this. So the work begins, and every man in the community, not just the leaders, but every man in the community begins to take responsibility for building the wall that was closest to his own house. And when, um, as soon as this begins to happen, opposition from God's enemies begins to come. This time in a trio of uh, these guys. Watch, check out these names. It says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. Welcome to Jerusalem, Nehemiah. Get out of town. We don't want you here. Nehemiah says, God has given me a task and I will complete it. He encourages the people and the work continues on in earnest. So what do you think happens? The opposition intensifies. Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said to them in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they finish up in a day? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? And then Tobiah chimes in and he says, yeah, what are they doing? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Bunch of jerks. You know what Nehemiah's response is? He prays. The enemy's response? 
intensifies its attack. You know what I love about this? Nehemiah is a spiritual man, but he's a pragmatic man. He knows that it's going to take a whole lot more than just prayer to be able to get the job done. So he divides his workforce in two. He takes half of them and he gives them some body armor, a spear, and a shield. And he says, you guys are responsible for looking 24-7 to make sure that there's an enemy coming. We have advanced notice. And he takes the other half of his workforce. They're laying brick. They got trowel and grout and brick. And he says, I want you to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Because if it gets nasty, you guys don't have time to run home. And the men worked around the clock like this. That's what I love about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is both a spiritual man and he's a practical man. I, uh, yesterday, I came here and I officiated a wedding. I was gone maybe an hour and a half. When I le- before I left, uh, my son, who's three, you got to understand, my three-year-old boy, God gave him like an extra dose of boy. So he's, he's a handful, right? I come back and my son is wiped out. My wife says he's got a terrible fever and he's got this horrible pain. I'm like, oh no. So I go in there and he's, t- he's got himself tucked into our bed and he's just, got, he's just so precious. He's so precious when he's sick, but he's, he's, got, he's just burning up. He's, he's pulling like 103 and he keeps complaining. He's in a lot of pain. And so I come next to him and say, hey, Paxton, Paxton, hey, buddy, can we pray? Ask Jesus to help you feel better? He goes, yeah. So I take his hand and I pray. I said, Jesus, Paxton's in a lot of pain. Please help him feel better. Amen. But you know what we also did? This is my wife's specialty. God bless her, right? We gave him Tylenol or fever reducer. We gave him a popsicle. We gave him the stuff that's going to help break a fever. And I come back to church last night, and I preach, and I go home, and my son is right as rain. And I look at him, and I say, Paxton, do you see what happened? We prayed that God would make you feel better. And God did, right? Right? Now, did we also take activity in that? I have no problem declaring what happened to my son yesterday a miracle, right? Through the agency of the power of modern medicine and good care, God allows the body to heal. See, there's not a whole lot of difference between God's miraculous work and your pragmatic day-to-day work. So this is what Nehemiah does, right? He allows his people, right, to come alongside. I want to watch what he says. He constantly pulls the people's attention back to how God will work as they work. He says, do not be afraid of them. First thing you do, remember the Lord. If you get sick, pray. Ask God to heal you, then go to the doctor, right? Remember the Lord first, who is great and awesome. But here's your responsibility. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Our God will fight for us. Do you see how Nehemiah is combining human agency and God's responsibility into one unified whole, right? See, as Pentecostals, we believe that God can and does heal, that God can and does do miraculous things, but it's not magic. We, as God's people, are also required to take the necessary steps of obedience and faith, and especially in this situation, the men were called to fight for your families and for your homes, Well, Sanballat, that bad guy, he never gives up on threatening Nehemiah. He sends this little envoy into Jerusalem. He says, Nehemiah, why don't you um, stop what you're doing and come out, and Sanballat would like to meet you for coffee. We want to sit down and chat. And um, Nehemiah says, "I, I know what this is. This is an attempt on my life. 
They're trying to distract me, take me out of the city and kill me. He says, no, thank you. Second time an envoy, third time, fourth time, four times, these envoy comes trying to distract Nehemiah from the call that God had given him. And each time Nehemiah says, I will not. And finally, Sanballat, the enemy, he writes this open letter to everybody in the region. And he says, you know that as soon as that wall is repaired, Nehemiah will declare independence from Persia and proclaim himself king. And Nehemiah knows this is nothing but a smear campaign and a scare tactic. And he simply says, Nehemiah 6, 9, oh God, strengthen my hands. It's a great prayer. That's all he said. God, strengthen my hands. God responds. The Bible says that in 52 days, the people completed the work of rebuilding the wall. What took 141 years, Nehemiah gets done in 52 days because when the right leader with the right convictions and the right motivations gets onto the scene with God behind him, good things happen. 141 years passed, and in 52 days, Nehemiah got the job done because God was going to be with him. And in fact, everybody who was opposed Nehemiah fell into great fear. The Bible says they lost heart, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now, the big point of the aspect of the story that I've been emphasizing is that every time Nehemiah takes a step forward in faith, what happened to him? He was opposed. Every single time, every single time. So part of my job description is to teach on passages of scripture that are supposed to scare you. So here we are again. Here's the big idea for today. Suffering is normal. Suffering is normal. Let me give you a couple of examples out of the uh, New Testament. It was normal for Jesus and for all who follow him. In the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross, he says to his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Question, was Jesus persecuted? What does that mean for you? Uh, Okay. Um, It also applies to those who are engaged in the process of preaching the gospel. Peter, James, and John, some of the early apostles, got a cease and desist order from the religious leaders of the day that said, stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ. You know what Peter, Paul, and John do? No, we must continue because we must obey God rather than men. And so they intensify. They bring these three guys into their quarters and they beat them half to death. And on their way out, as they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Suffering is normal, not only for Jesus, for those who preach the gospel, for those who choose to expand the church. Paul was the first century's greatest missionary, the man called by God out of a life of sin into holiness and on mission. And the very first thing that Saul, who would turn into Paul, is told is, I am going to show you how much you must suffer for the sake of the name. That was God's sales pitch to Paul. You join my tribe, you're going to suffer. And if you read the accounts in 2 Corinthians 10 about what Paul endured as a missionary, it's horrifying. And he was quick to point out to every church that he planted, he says this to anybody who wants to follow Christ faithfully, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, obviously, there's a context here that we need to keep in mind. Paul was operating in the first century in which Christianity was seen as completely in opposition to the government of the day. 
we as Christians in America have lived through about 200 years in which the church and the state were aligned somewhat in parallel to be able to support the structure of society. I'm no expert, but it seems like that is no longer the case, and it's only increasing the opposite direction. I don't want you to be afraid about this. The vast majority of Christians in the world today exist underneath a harmful regime. And the place where the church is growing the most is where the opposition is the strongest. But I do want to make, I'll point out these scriptures for two reasons. One, the gospel is not a bait and switch. And I want to apologize if anybody ever told you that by following Jesus, your life is going to be easier. Quite the opposite. Because if you choose to follow Jesus faithfully in the face of our society, you will find yourself in opposition to the cultural values of our day. Congratulations. However, what you've also done is you've invited snare and criticism and jeering and jest and rejection. Potentially, you'll get passed over for promotion. Potentially, you will not land that client. Doing business with integrity is hard. Following Jesus in your family, keeping a marriage relationship alive that's not suspect to pornography or adultery or just general emotional divorce is hard. Raising children in today's world that will grow up to love Jesus above everything else and not fall into the trap of idolatry of sex, money, status, power, and fame is hard. And yet, even though the Bible says it won't be, it is still absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. I want to make sure that we're looking at our world clear-eyed as Christians saying, though suffering may come, though my government may turn against me, though I, though I lose face in the workplace, though my life becomes substantially harder, in my extended family, yet I will choose to remain faithful to the one God who has chosen me, loved me, sought me, made me holy and blameless before him. So friends, if you know that following Jesus is going to cost you quite literally everything, and yet Paul says, for I consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed within us. There comes a day, there is a future hope that I want you to keep clear-eyed in front of you. That God will set all things right. He's a God of justice. And he is for you. So don't compromise. Don't sacrifice your integrity for a quick buck. Maintain faithfulness to Jesus even if it costs you dearly. The Bible says you can be sure it will. So don't be surprised when bad, difficult, hard, troubling times come. You are warned. God is with you. God will fight for you. So, anybody want to accept Jesus? <laughs> He's a good king. And by embracing his way, We've been given the opportunity to demonstrate the power of his glorious grace. Let's finish up, play a little game, Let's look at what we learned. What do we learn today? Here's what you learned at church. Uh, number one, uh, God's grace can and does restore and glorify broken people, especially broken people because they're the ones who need it the most. I want to repeat, this does not happen by magic. You cannot continue to do the exact same things you're doing today and expect a different result. God can and does change you from the inside out and he asks you to participate with him 
and creating the necessary structures around you to become free from addiction, become free from sin in order to walk in the holiness that he will provide for you. And when that happens, we as a church, our responsibility is to encourage the faint-hearted, be a support for those who are about to do something really dumb and to point them back towards the hope that Jesus can provide and to always extend grace. Not cheap, but grace. I think the second thing is this, that the work of God will always be opposed. Jesus is not liked and loved by everyone. Neither will you. Don't expect that. And the more you desire to live for and like Jesus, the more opposition you will encounter. Expect that too. But stand firm. Remain faithful. Trust in God. Fight. Let's pray. Let's have our worship teams and our prayer teams come forward. Jesus, thank you that you are the divine warrior strengthening our hands for the work that is in front of us. Father, please assist my brothers and sisters here, those especially that um, need encouragement, that are going through hard times. Father, help them, cause them to remain faithful to you, to what they know to be true in the work that you've given them. Father, give us grace, Lord so that we might turn around and praise you for that glorious grace. Father, pray for friends here who don't know you. God, bring conviction into their heart. Illuminate the beauty of a way of living for you. God, cause us to trust in you more. Help us to be faithful, a strong witness to this community, and an agent of change in this world. In your name we pray. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.